Are you sure? Okay. Good. Let's pray again together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this is your word. It is your holy word, holy scripture for us, to us, as your love letter of grace, as your decree as the king, as your words to shepherd your dear people. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to live by these things, that you would bring comfort for our soul, that you would redirect our soul to what is most important in your sight. So please, Lord, let this time be something that is used by you. Lord, would your spirit be at work amongst us, opening our eyes, drawing us towards the one who is altogether beautiful. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Cool. So as Anthony said, we start the book of Acts. And the place where I started the book of Acts was Wednesday morning at about half past eight in the morning. We okay? Brilliant. But if you, nothing to share, no? Just checking, okay? That's what happens when people talk, when I'm talking, okay? Anybody else got anything to share? No? Okay. Half past eight on Wednesday morning started my... Uh, journey into the book of Acts while I was watching Wiley Coyote cartoons. Anybody like Wiley Coyote? Yes, I knew Western Woods. Yes, good. We like Wiley Coyote ca- cartoons. And it's because they're predictable. So here I am, I'm watching this Looney Tunes, this Wiley Coyote film, and you know, uh, cartoon. You know, at some point, he's going to end up off a cliff. But unlike you and I, uh, when Wiley Coyote goes off a cliff, what happens? He floats, doesn't he? I was trying to think of a word to describe it. It's almost like he's suspended, but he's not there, is it? And this is what we love about these cartoons, isn't it? And what happens is he, he goes running off the cliff, and he's in the middle of fresh air, 10 feet from the, from the cliff face, and he's running, and he's running, and slowly, and us, we're watching on, slowly he starts to realise everything isn't all quite as he wants. And he looks around, he can't see Roadrunner, he goes this way, and then he looks back there, and he sees the edge of the cliff, and then suddenly his eyes close and then he starts to bend down and touch to try and find some ground. And you know what's coming. He opens his eyes. He looks down. And on the moment that he realises that he is under the influence of gravity, it is at that moment that what happens? And I think spiritually, we like to be wily e. Coyote. We like to go on in our world and then just hope it'll work out our way that no spiritual reality will have any kind of pull on us whatsoever unless we decide that we want to acknowledge that it's there. That's why we like the Wiley Coyote uh, cartoons because we're sitting there going and we know what's coming because you cannot defy gravity. Now every now and again there's a Wiley Coyote um, cartoon that comes along where the, 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 um, the writers and designers, they love to just throw us a curveball and he just walks across the other cliff. That's just to ruin my illustration. But the reality is, is that Wiley Coyote uh, isn't real. It's made up. It's almost like a, a wishful dream of the human heart, isn't it? That we can decide what will have an effect on us and it will only have an effect on us when we decide that we want to look at it. You see that? Now the book of Acts here is there to counteract that. The book of Acts is to tell us that there is something greater than gravity at work in the world. And rather than be like Wiley e. Coyote and hit the deck in a big puff of smoke or dust, 
The book of Acts is there to tell us some reality so we can live in line with it. What is the message of the book of Acts? Well, it's that the unstoppable movement of Jesus Christ's growing kingdom out into the world through his word. That's what Sophie's saying right now, isn't it? Yeah, thought so. Good. Okay, just checking. It is the unstoppable movement of Jesus Christ's growing kingdom across the whole world as they hear about him as the king. Now, that's what the book of Acts is all about. And there's a danger for you and me as we begin to look at this book of Acts, okay? The first one, the first danger is that we would think that the church is merely an institution to be attended and not a mighty movement of God across history. Can I say that again? The danger for us is that we would think that the church is merely an institution to attend rather than a mighty movement of God across history and across the nations. The church is a movement. We talk about ourselves as a church family, don't we? But it'd be tempting to think that church is something I do on a Sunday morning or at the midweek meetings that I come to and I go and help out with this work or that work and I turn up at this prayer meeting or not, as the case may be, and this is what I, these are things I attend. No, no, no. The church is a movement of God through history and across the nations to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that we've got to be really careful we don't slip out of. We can be complacent in that. The second thing is this. There's a real danger that we can live our spiritual lives as if we're the point. And what does that look like? What I do in my mind is I draw a picture of church in my mind. And guess who sat right at the middle? Me. My preferences, the things that I like, the people that I like, the things that I do want to do, and forget those things that the Bible tells me I should do that I don't want to do. What I do is I make myself the point of my spiritual life, as if. And I'm in danger of forgetting that Jesus is the point, he's the focus, he is the Lord and he's the King. We're not sitting here merely for our spiritual health. Though it will be wonderfully helpful to us every time we sit under God's word. We sit in here because Jesus Christ is Lord. And if we're in a Pentecostal church, we'd have got an Amen. Okay? Jesus Christ is Lord. There was a, a recent uh, commentator who, was, who, who, who uh, sold oodles of books when talking about what was going on in the American church, which isn't too different to what goes on in the British church, to be honest with you. And he's described American Christianity like this. He's called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. Stick that in your Google Translate and see what happens, okay? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. He said that there's a tendency in the Western world to make our our Christianity merely about doing the right things and not doing the wrong things and then trying to figure out what those things are. Moralistic. So it's merely moralism. He said there's a tendency to make it therapeutic. So I will think about the Christian message to the degree that I think it will be helpful to me. Maybe a crutch will get me through t- tough times. And it's deistic in this sense, in that deism believes that there is a God who once upon a time wound up the world, he's off beyond the Andromeda galaxy, very occasionally if you pray really, really hard he might turn up and help you in tough times, but basically he's not got his hands on the wheel, he's nowhere near and he's not involved. So there's a temptation there to believe that it's just about doing good or bad, that it's all about me and uh, and to my advantage, and that God really isn't involved. The story of the Bible is totally the opposite. In fact, that story I've just told is one of just individualistic spirituality that suits me as I see fit. But the danger here, and thankfully for the book of Acts won't let us go there, the danger here is that we sit into that rather than say, no, no, this is all about Jesus the King. 
We are not an institution to attend, but we are part of a movement through history and across the nations. And this is not all about me. This is about him, his glory, his name, his future, that he has so graciously allowed people like you and me, even me, into. And Acts tackles this in two ways. Number one, it tells us the truth. Look down at verse 1 of chapter 1, okay? Look down at verse 1 of chapter 1. It tells us the truth. Somebody read verse 1 for me. Okay, do you get that? All that I wrote about it. This is uh, Luke the doctor, an investigative journalist, writing down what Jesus had done. And that's the former book, Luke. Okay, Uh, Luke part two is the book Acts. And he writes it down as history. He's been supported by this guy, Theophilus. We don't know anything about him. He was probably some sort of patron who supported the whole initiative. But it was been written down so that people could know truth. You need to build your life on something that is true and not a lie. And that's the big claim here. But the second thing, the way that the book of Acts helps us, number one tells us the truth, but number two shows us power. The book of Acts is full of action. It's all about a God who is personally involved at work in our world. How else can you explain how a ragtag bunch of uneducated men conquered the greatest empire the world has ever known with not a gun or a missile or a sword but merely by word of mouth of a king who lives on a in a far-off country who has sway and owns every soul on planet earth they did that in one generation And it was because the power of God was at work, doing particular things in particular lives, but carrying this message out. And it is a scandalous message. If it was a message of, just come here and and everything will be fine in your life, that would win people. But it wasn't that message. It was the message that, well, we're ruined sinners. But there's a God of grace. And he will redeem you. His son had to suffer for us, verse 3. But by sheer grace, we can be his people once again, serve him, if only we will turn in repentance and faith. I suppose it's while Wiley Coyote can only just hit the rock at the bottom and be flattened, the rock, the unavoidable reality, takes us up in his arms and says, I will redeem and reclaim you by my grace for my purposes. The Lord is that rock. So as we look through the book of Acts, I just want you to expect to be put on the spot. Now, I don't know whether you respond very well to being put on the spot. Most people don't, primarily because they're proud. But the book of Acts, God's word, is there to put us on the spot. Because these things that we're dealing with are too serious to treat as if they are nothing. It won't necessarily be that polite as it does it. I'll try and soften it a little bit if appropriate and be a little bit. But I assure you, however rude you think I am, I guarantee the book of Acts is more rude than that. Okay, it's going to be tough as we move through this, but this could be the most significant sermon series we look at in recent years. And that's my hope and that's my prayer that we would be hearing from the Lord on what it means to be part of a movement and not live as if our little lives, our puny little lives are more important than they really are. So two things that I want us to see today. The first thing is an unavoidable history. The second thing I find my heading is an inevitable trajectory okay so an unavoidable history have a little look somebody read nice and loudly for me will you verses one through to three verses one through to three who can read that
So I wonder whether you picked that up as, it, as we flew through. It's only just a tiny little word. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus, what? Began. Began. So the whole of Luke's gospel about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is just the beginning of the Christian message. In other words, he's not finished yet. What he has begun, he intends to finish. So what was it that he begun? Well, we met him as the man from heaven, God with us, so much more than a prophet. Then we see, and it's echoed here in verse 3, he suffered. So serious is our cosmic treason and rebellion against the true and living God. So broken is the world that a little bit of good do-goodism uh, do won't fix it. We need the true and living uh, man from heaven to come and pay for our sin. Verse 3 continues that he's raised victorious. I love this bit, that he gave many convincing proofs. It's the idea of sort of incontrovertible evidence in a law court. You know, he met with and revealed himself to more than 500 people on multiple occasions. He kept just turning up and going, I'm alive, deal with it. I am alive, I'm here, you can't avoid it, I won't allow you to. I will give you too much compelling evidence for you to come up with any other conclusion than I am the risen Lord. So much so that thousands went to their death proclaiming in immediate times around this proclaiming he is risen we will do nasty things to you unless you deny this i cannot deny this i've seen him he is risen this whole uh, account here is written as if to say you know uh, I've, I've made a careful check of this go ask them yourselves they were there they saw it's impossible to believe but the impossible has happened believe it he got in their faces and so many of them went to their death saying he is risen and then you've got to consider just how transformed they were by that i love the opening verses of john's first letter 1 john chapter 1 i just want to read this to you just pick just pick up the sound of this and hear the apostle with the enthusiasm and the warmth and the changed heart he says this that which was from the beginning which we have heard which are, uh, we have seen with our eyes which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Do you get the, the sense of utter conviction of the apostle, of who Jesus is, what he has done, and the evidence that is there behind it? So this is the reality this is the reality. This is the history that we've been asked to deal with. And it means that certain things need to be faced. If this is true, it means that this is the most important message the world has ever heard. There aren't multiple ways to God, and we don't get to make him up to suit our agendas. We don't get to put him on the back burner with the excuse that he hasn't said or done anything, because he's screaming at us down through history that he has. It means that any other suggested ways of salvation won't cut it. There is only one way to be saved. It is by the name of Jesus. Because God the Father would not put his son through this if you could be saved by being a good person or by pulling your socks up or by recycling or by doing something like that. No, no, we're having a declaration here of how seriously lost we are but how serious God the Father is to save through Jesus Christ. And here's something that's a travesty. 
It is a travesty to compare Jesus to any other religious leader out there. Whether it's Muhammad or Buddha or Gandhi or Oprah or whoever else it might be, they just don't compare. He is the risen one. None of them have done what he's done. None of them have raised the dead themselves. None of them have spoke with the teaching. None of them have made the the blind to see. None of them have fed the 5,000. Here is the one who is the Lord of life. And he has continuous power. What he began in his gospel is working out as his church moves forward. His history is constantly breaking into yours and my present. That's what he's doing. He has continuous power because unlike any other religious teacher, he's the one who's alive forever. He's alive. That is our Jesus Christ. And so in case we're unsure how to respond, look at the end of verse 3 to see how it is that they're to respond. Well, you see what he does. The end of verse 3, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Think about all the things that he could have taught them about. He could have talked to them about nanotechnology. He could have talked to them about the virtues of Liverpool over Everton. He could have asked, uh, talked to them about how to, rather than listen to Mary Berry, about how to cook a pie. He could have told them how to cook the perfect pie. But instead, he talked to them about what was most important. And he set a model to say that anybody who would be my follower is somebody who's constantly learning and growing and thinking and being taught and hearing about this kingdom and its forward motion this is going to be all over the world so whether or not you're a wily coyote who's sort of in a little bit of a bubble and you could be a christian being like this a little bit of a bubble just pretending that that spiritual reality isn't out there and if you just keep your eyes closed and don't acknowledge it it won't it won't have any effect on you or if you're somebody who's not yet a believer and you're doing exactly the same and pretending no, no, that it's, it's not really there it's not really real if i keep my eyes closed and don't acknowledge it i won't have to fall into that reality So whether you're Wiley Coyote, who won't acknowledge it, whether you're you're a multimedia, multinational media company like CNN, or have global influence like the BBC, and pay no reference whatsoever to this great and awesome truth. You know, I was watching uh, a documentary last night. It's uh, about a TV personality who's gone to India. It's called Our Guy in India. It's a travel program. I thought it was brilliant. And I don't know whether you know this or not, but India is one of the places where the gospel is exploding. Churches are growing up everywhere. If you want to be a pastor there, you don't get to be a pastor until you've planted ten churches. That's the way it works out there. I'd be doomed. They wouldn't have me. Okay, the gospel is exploding there. And where is it that this great guy who's a great TV presenter, where does he take them to? A truck stop. Have you no idea what's going on in India? Of course, you just haven't got eyes to see what the king is doing. You're blind to it, as with all the other TV stations. You don't get travel programs on the BBC that go around and say, look at what this church is doing for the Lord. Look what's happening over here in in, in China. Look how how this church from that country is supporting the the church in Bangladesh as they struggle with that particular issue. Look how the church is being mobilized. Look how the church is being persecuted in Syria. Look what's happening to the Christians. No, they just just don't think of it even remotely as an issue of faith. It's just an event going on. So they're being Wile E. Coyote. So whether it's CNN, whether it's the BBC, whether it's our governments, whether it's you, this is the history of the world. 
This is the inescapable history. This is the unavoidable history because Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. I said there were two points. My second one is the next few verses just for us to have a look at. And if we've seen a history, now we need to see an inevitable trajectory, a direction of travel and movement. Somebody read for us, please, verses 4 through to 11. Verses 4 through to 11. Who's going to read that? Brilliant. Thank you for reading that. Now, listen, I said there's going to be a trajectory, a movement. It's out there through witnesses. There is a calling, but they're told to wait. So we need to just unpick this a little bit. And we need to make sure we're understanding the Bible the way the Bible wants to be understood. We thankfully are given some information that helps us understand what what it is when we talk about witnesses and, and what it is that the Lord's doing. Okay, So let's just think about this old business of witnesses. We know from normal law courts that witnesses are those who say what they... or what they... They're not called on to give their opinion. They're just simply called on to say, this is what is happening. This is what is there. Okay? And we say, okay, so the apostles, those guys who were gathered, were told by Jesus, go and be witnesses to everything I've just talked about, which is my life, my death, my resurrection, and my soon-to-be ascension, my claim to be Lord. Tell Tell the world what you've seen. Now, we, as God's people, are called to be witnesses in an ongoing way, but not in exactly the same way. It is right that we tell our own personal story of what the Lord has done in our life what we've seen and what we've heard. And each one of us in this room have the same and a different testimony story if we belong to Jesus. It will be the same in that he has met us in the midst of our life and the stuff that was going on. We became aware of our need of a saviour. We became aware that he was king. We repented of our sin, trusted in him and said, I'm going to live for him. That's what has happened when somebody's become a Christian. So everything is the same, but it's all played out in a million and one little fresh personal details. So even as I'm saying this, think through your testimony story of how God has met you and how he's changed your heart, been at work, cleansed you of your sin and given you a future and promised that you will be part of his team, his movement serving him. Thank him even as you're thinking of this now. But that's not what you're to be a witness of. Definitely tell people, much as you can. But here, we are to be a witness of the history of Jesus. 
We're to tell his story more than ours. In fact, ours is only useful to people in so much as it tells them his story of what he is doing. Do we understand that? So here are the apostles, and he said, you've seen, you know, you were there, tell that story. And then it's interesting through the book of Acts that about around about chapter 7 or 8, it, it shifts a little bit from the apostles early on saying, um, uh, you killed him, God raised him, we saw him, to later on in the book where it's not the apostles, but they're witnessing and preaching. They start going, uh, the Romans and the Jewish people killed him, God raised him, and the apostles saw him. We're pointing you to the witness of the apostles. Do you see that? In other words, we always point people back to this. Otherwise, somebody will roll up to us and say, well, that's really nice, your story of how you've met God. And I'm really happy for you. And clearly that has a lot of meaning in your life. But uh, I'm happy with my story very, very much. And if you were just witnessing to your story, you wouldn't be able to say anything back. But you're actually able to say, ah, but what about the fact that there is a bigger story right here about a Jesus who is risen? You can't avoid that. So you need to make up your mind about that. So we're to be witnesses. But listen, I've t- said all of that, but I need to go further back. I want you to turn, if you would, in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. Somebody shout out a page number when you've got it. 511. 511. Okay. Now let me tell you what's going on here. Uh, It's around about 700 BC. Uh, The nation of Israel were called to be witnesses to the nations about who Jesus is. Uh, Sorry, about who who God is and their covenant-making God. And they monumentally failed. And so now all the nations around don't think much of the true and living God because his people are a bunch of wasters. And the Lord has just promised that one day a great servant will come who will do a work and make new witnesses. Uh, let's read together from verse um, for, uh, chapter 43, verse 8. Actually, we'll start further back. Um, I'll start at verse 6. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by name, uh, by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. He's creating a law court. That's what the Lord is doing. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I and not some foreign God am among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. So what he's saying is there is a time coming when the servant of the Lord will equip a new people to witness to the nations that there is one Lord over all. And of course, Jesus is that Lord. 
He is that servant. And that is what the apostles are being told. What I promised before in the, in the scripture, says the Lord Jesus, is now upon us. But there's this strange phrase as well. Have you noticed this? Look in verse, here we go, verse 4. On one occasion, while I was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but, what's that say? Wait. So they've been told they're about to be witnesses, but rather than go out and start um, producing the publicity and organising the posters and setting up their social media campaign, he's first and foremost told them to wait. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So what was it that God the Father had spoken about? Well, let's go back into the Old Testament and find out again. So turn this time to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. This is about 500, sorry, 600 BC. And the Lord gives Ezekiel a vision. The people are, well, they're facing the consequence of turning their back on the Lord. But he starts to make them promises about what the future would bring. So Ezekiel chapter 36, which I think is page 609. Got page 609? Yep. Yep, okay. And we're going to start to read at verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations where you've gone. He's reminding Israel that the Lord looks terrible. They've misrepresented him and it's their fault. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned amongst the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. So he's saying he's going to do something that will show the world over how awesome he is and how he is the only one who saves. How is he going to do that? Verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations... I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own lands. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of sto- remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And to be careful to keep my laws. Who's going to do that? Who's going to do that spiritual transformation amongst the nations? Who's going to do it? Who's who's going to do it? He says, I want you to put my spirit in you. Is that what he says? He says, I will do it. This is going to be a movement of God that only God can do. Flick over one page and we're in the valley of the dry bones where Ezekiel gets a vision of just all these bones scattered in this valley and they're all dead and they can't wake themselves up. And I, don't know, I take it that you guys know that if you see a bunch of old bones on the floor, whatever the bones have come from isn't making itself jump up and become alive again. But look at verse 9, chapter 37, verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and breath entered them and came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. 
Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then, then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Do you get this? A time is coming when the Lord is going to do a spiritual work. He will make people alive. He will give them new hearts and he will cleanse them of their sin. Wait, apostles, until the spirit is here. So what does this tell us? It tells us that this is something that only God can do. He intersects human lives, whether in India, whether in first century Palestine, or whether in speak. He intersects human lives by his spirit. And what does that tell us if you're a believer here today? And I don't assume that just because you're in church, you're a believer. Just because you may know some of the hymns doesn't mean you're a believer. And, and you know, if you're a person who is trying to make your mind up, then you're particularly welcome here as you do this. But if you're somebody who sat in church for too long and just doesn't really believe, then you need to ask the Lord as much as you can. Say, Lord, would you do a work of awakening in me? It means that if you are a believer here, it means you haven't signed up for a club or it means that you haven't, it's not, you're not here because you've got a religious bone in your body. It's because you've been met by the Spirit of the living God. And he has awakened in you a hope in Jesus. Praise him for that. You can't be bullied or bought into his kingdom. You can't be reasoned in. And we should invite people into his kingdom, but don't, make, don't think for a second that our invitation has got the power to awaken a cold heart of stone and make it flesh. We can't do that. Only the Lord can. A Muslim can put a gun to the head of somebody and say, you're going to be a Muslim. But you can't do that with somebody who becomes a Christian. Because a Christian has experienced a supernatural change inside. Because they've met with the power of the person Jesus Christ in his spirit. So he says, don't think you can do it without me. I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to go global. Be still and be stirred, he says to the apostles there, by the spirit who will flood you for mission. And you say, what does it look like to be filled with the spirit? And we're going to be exploring this more and more as we move through the book of Acts. But in the book of, well, put it this way. In, the, in Luke and Acts, whenever it talks about being filled with the Spirit or baptised with the Spirit or empowered by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit does an awful lot of thing in Luke and Acts, but the main thing that he does is he empowers people and fills them so they can tell the message of Jesus. So let me give you an example. Okay, It's always a filling of the Spirit in the heart which produces words that go to the mouth. So Luke chapter 1 verse 15, John the Baptist is filled with the Spirit proclaiming the coming of the Lord. In Luke chapter 1 verse 41, Elizabeth being filled with the Spirit proclaims blessing over Mary. In Luke chapter 1 verse 67, Zechariah being filled with the Spirit prophesies about the coming glory of Jesus. Acts, I'm not, not trying to write all these down, it'll kill you. Acts chapter 2 verse 4, the Holy Spirit fills the apostles at Pentecost and they begin to declare God's praises in multiple languages. Chapter 4 verse 8, Peter is filled with the Spirit and preaches to the rulers that Jesus is their only hope of salvation. 
chapter 4, verse 31, the disciples are filled with the Spirit and they speak the word of God boldly in the face of severe persecution. Acts chapter 9, verse 20, Paul is filled with the Spirit and he immediately begins to preach in the synagogues. Are you beginning to get the feel for this? The mark that you're filled with the Spirit is that you've got a desire to share hope in Jesus and declare to the nations or your neighbours or the person living in your house that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I wonder whether you're on board with that. I wonder whether you're on board. Listen, there's loads of things I'd like to pick out of this. There's some more I'd like to talk about, but time is short. So I just want to go to two implications for us today as we've listened to this and looked at this first chapter in the book of Acts. What are we to do with all of this? What are we to make of it? Okay. Well, I think the first one is this. Mission. This is going to be a timely reminder for us that as nice as our building is, as busy as our programs are, we're not here to keep those things going. We're supposed to be on mission for Jesus. It's not an add-on. It's, it's who we are. I was reading this uh, one pastor who's been speaking about these things recently, and this is what he said. I think it's quite, it's quite blunt, but to be honest with you, I think it really hits it. He says this, Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Let's say that again. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either actively, sacrificially and full of love join with the trajectory of spreading about Jesus and everybody plays their different part but you're on board with it, you pray, you give, you go out, you commit. You're a missionary, whether in speak or wherever else. Or else, instead, you're an imposter. You don't really love him at all. And you may do Christian things, but it casts an awful lot of doubt on whether you're a believer. Because this is what the Spirit does. If you become a believer, you want to get busy talking about Jesus. Now listen, I want to tell you that we as leaders here at our church, we want to help you with this. We really want to help you. If you are somebody who knows they're a missionary, but maybe has lost a bit of way or not quite sure how to do it, we want to really help you. Uh, we're going over the next few weeks, we're going to be introducing you, um, as we have to the members, we're going to be introducing you to our, our, our vision um, trajectory, our vision story. We're going to be talking and saying, who are we as a, as a church here in Speak, and how is it over the next four or five years we believe the Lord wants us to be mobilised as missionaries? It will mean that for everybody who's on board with this, everybody who's a believer will be saying to you, we want you to know your part. We want to know, for your own sanity, we want you to know what we think the Lord has called you to be doing, how you play your part, and what you've not got to do as well. Otherwise, you'll be stressing, I've got to do everything. No, you haven't got to do everything. So given your circumstance, we as elders want to really get beside you and support and encourage you with this. But I just want to say to you, if you're an imposter, you're still welcome, and we want to help you as well. If you're an imposter, we want to do three things for you. And we are going to do three things for you. What we're going to do, first of all, is we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for you. That the Lord would open your eyes to the need to live for Jesus and be mobilised for it. We're going to do a second thing. We're going to teach you. We're going to keep on telling you the same gospel message. So that you can become either more and more convinced to the point where you want to sign on with it. Or more and more angry to the point where you want to publicly declare, I want nothing more to do with Jesus. And the other thing we're going to do is, gently and lovingly, we're going to get in your face. We're going to love you so much, 
that we're prepared to talk to you and say, why is it? Why is it that you've signed up as a covenant member of the church here, but when we have a prayer week about the mission of Jesus, that's off the agenda for you? Why is that? If there's something we can do to help you with that, we'll do it. But let's not pretend it's not a problem. Let's not pretend. We love you too much to play at this, because this is life and death. There's an example. Why is it that, well, you're spending on that beautiful 52-inch plasma screen, but you've never put anything into investing in gospel ministry either here or overseas? Do you mind if we have a conversation about that? Because it doesn't fit with who the Lord of glory is. So if you're a missionary, we're going to get alongside and we're going to help you and we're going to encourage you. And we're going to help you figure out what Jesus would have you do at this point and for the next few years as part of this community. And if you're somebody who's not on board with that, oh dear, we're going to love you and we're going to pray for you. But we're not going to let you just sit there and do nothing and pretend to yourself and the world. Does that make sense? Because that's what the book of Acts demands. I said there were two things. The first implication of this is mission. The second one is worship is worship. Now, as much as I like to make applications that challenge us or talk to us, or this is what you've got to do, I need to tell you that these verses are primarily not about you. And they're not about me. And they're not about this church. Who are they about? They're about Jesus. They're about him. His ascension, him being raised up to glory, is a massive statement It's as important as the cross and the resurrection. He is the ascended Lord. Ascending, you know, going up is like a a spatial word that is talking about relational truth. You get this? So let me put it this way in a a silly small way. It works like this. Uh, There's a point coming where um, our queen, as great as she's been, she will pop her clogs. And at that point, our relationship to probably Prince Charles, unless he popped his clogs first, will change dramatically on that day. On that day, he will ascend to the throne and he will cease to be a prince and he will become our king who has authority over us. You see that? On this day, they got to watch, like this, as the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven, which is closer to earth than you may possibly imagine. He ascended to heaven and he rules and he reigns. There's no ifs or buts about him. Jesus is the one who is above the world. He is Lord. And this text invites us to acknowledge that, to live like that with him as that, and to be changed by that. Let's pray just before we sing. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of this text and the declaration that it has made. We thank you as a result of what happened on that day. The world has been turned upside down. We thank you that now across this planet, two billion people claim allegiance to Jesus Christ. And whether or not each and every one of those are true missionaries or imposters, that's in your hands, Lord. All we know 
is that your plans are ripening fast and you are Lord over all things. So we pray and we ask that you would not allow us to get complacent or caught up with other things, but that you would make us those who are rejoicing in the risen Lord Jesus Christ and living out his command to be part of that movement through time and across the nations. We pray, Lord, here in Speak, that you would flood this place with your spirit, that we may be renewed, and that you would call to people around in this locality that they should be saved and be part of that same initiative too. Lord, we praise you that you're worthy. We thank you that our ascended king is good and loves us. We thank you, Lord, that you're so good to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.